You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. give those next steps. It just reminded me that, uh, you know, he was sharing with you much of what our communications director, Jessica Clements, put together. She's not here today. And the reason she's not here today is because she and Ryan, they had their baby girl, Finley Joy, this week. And I think we ought to just celebrate with them and celebrate what God did with their family. So we're really excited for them. Precious little girl, uh, now with two older brothers. So there's gonna be a lot of excitement in the Clements household. And, and uh, my prediction is, even if she tries to watch services today, she will not be able to stay awake you know, through most of today. But we're excited for them and uh, just celebrating what God's doing there. So over the next few weeks, obviously you're gonna be seeing other people uh, do some of those things that Jessica's done so much for us and, and we appreciate her ministry. And uh, today, I, I just want to start off, um, Jeff Vines, in his book, uh, Dinner with Skeptics, he tells the story of Sherry. Uh, Sherry was doing some window shopping and enjoying a beautiful summer afternoon in Brisbane and stopped for some coffee, got a cappuccino and was just drinking that coffee, taking in the beautiful day and the sights around. And there she sipped on her coffee all of a sudden she looked out and this elderly woman who had this purse with these this long strings on the purse was suddenly being pushed to the ground by this young man. He was trying to snatch her purse away from her. She was just in shock holding her coffee watching this unfold. And she's sitting at a table telling her friends about this story. And she says, you know, now in retrospect, when I look at, back on it, it actually was almost playing out in slow motion because he must have not have been a very experienced elderly lady purse snatcher because he got tangled up in the strings of the purse and he was flailing around and the purse was flailing around and this lady's on the ground and he's trying to steal the purse and she was just in shock watching this unfold, just hoping it would just go away and stop, you know, it would just stop. But eventually, finally, he got the purse and, and off he went. And she's telling her friends that later after the fact, she's realizing, I probably could have done something. I mean, I, I, I easily had time to go over there and you know, yell or scream or kick him or you know, do something and try to make it harder for him so he'd run away. She's like, I probably could have done something. And her friends at the table were just in shock. They're like, you didn't do anything? You didn't say anything? You didn't act? You didn't help this elderly lady? But I mean, they were like, you know, really getting on to her that she didn't do something in that moment. And partly in her defense, and probably a little bit with some pent-up frustration about some other things, this was her response to her friends at that dinner table. She said, if what I did was wrong, then why does God sit idly by when others are being hurt, when he has the power to do something about it? Hmm. She said, well, I can accept that mankind is responsible for most of the pain and suffering in this world, and that natural disasters happen in a fallen world, does that really nullify God's responsibility to limit the measure of destruction? Why does God sit on his hands? Why does God sit on his hands? And you want to get on to me for sitting on mine. Sherry's question in its various forms have been asked all throughout history over and over again in the face of evil and suffering and persecution and oppression. 
I mean, don't you think right now there's probably Ukrainian people who've been displaced from their homes, they've lost everything, maybe even people in their life, and they don't, they have, with no certainty about what the future holds, don't you think some of them are probably asking the question, God, why are you sitting on your hands? Why are you not doing something? Don't you think some of those boys in India that were sold into slavery because they and their family were starving to death, so just trying to get food, don't you think at this point maybe some of them are saying, God, why didn't you do something? Why are you just sitting there on your hands? Maybe some of you right now, you're feeling that, you're thinking that. God, why didn't you do it? It's just a question that comes up. It wasn't the first time it was asked. It won't be the last time it was asked. In fact, really, it's the same question Gideon asked. We, we, we get kind of an up-close and, and personal view of his question to God. It's in Judges 6. It's very similar to Sherry's question. It comes from, I think, some of the, the same places that her question came from. It's 1179 B.C. The Israelites are, are severely oppressed by the Midianites, which includes Gideon. So much so that they're living in caves. They're living in mountain clefts in rock. They're living in strongholds. They're suffering. Whenever they would plant crops, the text tells us in Judges 6 that the Midianites and Amalekites and other eastern peoples would invade their country, camp on the land, ruin the crops. They were taking everything from them. Everything that they would work for, all of the harvest, it went to them, and the Israelites had nothing. And in Judges 6, 4 through 6, it says that they, they these Midianites and others, they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Like swarms of locusts ravaging the land, coming on it, taking everything that was there, everything that they worked for, taking the harvest from them. I can't help every time I read this text my mind immediately, I know, I know this is an old reference, but it goes back to 1998, the, the animated movie, the, A Bug's Life. Do you, do you remember this movie with Hopper? How Hopper would sweep in and he, they, they would take, you know, the, from the produce and, and all the harvest that the ants collected, they would take it for themselves. And there's a whole storyline there. But, but for seven years, Israel has to deal with Hopper, a.k.a. the Midianites just swarming in, devouring, taking everything that's theirs. They live in fear, in scarcity. They're suffering. They're intimidated. And in Judges 6, verses 11 and 12, we're introduced to Gideon. He is in a wine press, threshing wheat. He's not on the threshing floor where you would do this in the wide open space, throwing it into the air so that the chaff is separated from the wheat and the wheat would fall. He's in a sunken area, somewhat down low, underground, in a wine press, trying to do the same thing and trying to rake away the chaff because he doesn't want the Midianites to see him and take everything that he's worked for and his food. And there he is, living in fear, living in oppression, in that wine press. When suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to him. He doesn't realize at first who he's talking to. 
But commentators would say this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself because in verse 14, he's called the Lord. In chapter two, back in chapter two, the angel of the Lord, the word there is Yahweh. It's God showing up. It's what we call a theophany when God comes and he came to Gideon. And so the Midianites may not have seen Gideon in the wine press, but God sees Gideon there in the wine press. And here's what God says to him in Judges 6, verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's so ironic. I mean, is that sarcasm? Mighty warrior. He doesn't look anything like a mighty warrior. He looks defeated, discouraged. He's filled with doubts and with questions and fear, hiding out in a wine press. But God sees what we don't see yet. He sees a hero in hiding. He sees a deliverer in disguise. God sees what we don't see, what no one else sees, Gideon, the mighty warrior. And, and the phrase, God is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon doesn't feel like God is with him at all. In fact, this is what Gideon does. All of his questions start pouring out. His opinions come to the surface, his feelings and here's what he says in verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord. It's lowercase Lord. He, he doesn't know who he is yet. Gideon replied, but if the Lord, if the Lord, if God is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. It's Gideon's version of why is God sitting on his hands? Why? When you're going through oppression and pain, you just want to ask some why questions of God. And, and his questions, I mean, he's questioning a lot. First of all, Gideon, he questions God's fairness. He que if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? This isn't fair. If he's with us, why would this happen? He questions God's fairness. Then he questions God's power. If God's, where's his wonders? If God's with us, where is he? Why is he not showing up and doing something about it? And then he questions God's faithfulness, God's abandonment. He's forsaken us. He left us. He's not with us. He's not for us. I mean, it's not the first time someone has questioned God. It, it, it won't be the last because Gideon's question is similar to many of our questions when we go through times of oppression and suffering. If the Lord's with us, why? Why doesn't he stop this? Why does he allow bad things to happen? Why doesn't God intervene right now? Quicker, sooner. Isn't that proof that he doesn't care? I mean, if God cared, wouldn't he do something? I mean, isn't that evidence that God isn't really a God of love? Because what kind of God would let those kinds of evil atrocities happen? He doesn't love you. Obviously, God's not all powerful because if he could do something, he obviously would. What well, a loving God wouldn't allow that. So he doesn't, and, and the questions begin to flow and we pour them out and we aim them at God. If he could stop it, he surely would. I mean, I know there's many reasons why evil things happen, why these evil atrocities exist. I mean, we could talk about how we're in a sinful, fallen world that's been cursed by sin that was set in motion by Adam and Eve. We could talk about the sinful world we're just in. We could talk about how Satan himself, he will bring evil because he too has rebelled against God and so he will bring pain and hardship into our lives and until he's thrown into the abyss once and for all but that's heaven and that's not yet and we can talk about the sin that's in other people's lives and how their evil decisions and their choices affect us greatly and dearly we could give all those reasons but that's not the reason for Judges 6 not, not specifically 
In fact, in Judges 6, we know the reasons. There's two reasons why there's oppression and suffering that's going on in Judges chapter 6. And, and we learn about it. We, we know why it's happening. And we first learn about it in the verse that I skipped. You may not have realized it, but I didn't read verse 1. I didn't start with verse 1. I started with verse 2. I started telling you the story that began in verse 2. But if we go back to verse 1, if we read Gideon, uh, Judges 6 verse 1, we, we realize why the bad things are happening. It says the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. His chosen people, the ones he had rescued and saved, they turned from God, they rebelled from God, they abandoned God. And because of their evil ways and their sin, they were suffering the consequences of their sin. So God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. What that means is that there were two sources of suffering in their life at that time. The first one was their own natural consequences because of their own sin. Man, when we sin against God, we suffer the natural consequences that comes with that. And they were experiencing everything that comes with the, the evil and, and the wicked decisions that they were making. But also, the second reason is they were experiencing God's discipline in their lives, not to pay them back as much as it was to bring them back to him because they were turning away from their one true God, the one who had chosen them and saved them and redeemed them. Natural consequences and God's discipline. That's why they were going through what they were going going through. God had told them why. It's not the first time God disciplined his people and it wouldn't be the last. And I think what's so crazy for me is when you go through the book of Judges and as a church family, we've been going through this year of Bible engagement. And so uh, those of us who are with that, we've already read through Judges. We're, We're past that now. We're in Samuel. But when we went through Judges, Man, we, we just saw this cycle of sin and redemption over and over and over. And it's just mind-boggling. It's crazy to me. As you read through that, just how these people just stubbornly refused to come back to God time and time again. And because of that, it just reveals through their stubbornness and sinfulness just how hard-hearted we can be. How many years they spent in that cycle of suffering before they would finally say, okay, God. In fact, if you look on the screen, with the Mesopotamians, it was eight years. With the Moabites, it took them 18 years. With the Canaanites, it took them 20 years. With the Midianites that we're reading about right now, it took them seven years. With the Ammonites, it was 18 years. And with the Philistines, 40 years. You add it up, and it's like 111 years of unnecessary suffering that was completely necessary in order for them to come back to God. 111 years of stubbornness and resistance to the Lord. and It's so easy to see it on paper when you're reading it to be like, man, I can't believe that they would do that and yet we do the same thing. The cycle repeats itself in our lives. When we stubbornly wanna do what's right in our own eyes, when we wanna follow our own flesh and our own desires, We undermine what God wants to do and we miss out on his blessings that he wants to pour out in our lives and even his protection at times because we insist on doing it our way. And like the Israelites, we we pursue our other loves. We pursue our other gods. We put things and people ahead of God. And like the Israelites, because of that, we're involved in all the things of the culture around us. 
And oftentimes not looking much different than the culture around us. That's what the Israelites did. And because they were worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs, one of the prominent sins that was going on in their culture at the time was sexual immorality. The same thing we see in our culture, even in our church, because any time that we're not pursuing what God says about honoring him with our bodies sexually, where God has made it so clear between a man and a woman in marriage, this is what honors him, what he's created, and yet any time we go outside of that, we're doing what our culture embraces and what the world embraces, not what God has said to us. We too don't live under those blessings because we, we adopt the ways of the culture around us, and we begin to suffer. And then we have the audacity, just like Gideon, to say, God, you've abandoned us. You've forsaken us. You're not coming through for us. You've, you've gone away from us. And Gideon says, the Lord has abandoned us. But the truth was that they abandoned the Lord. That's the truth. In fact, God had already told Gideon and all of his people. But they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. But back in Judges 6, 7 through 10, God sent a prophet to tell them that even though he had rescued them out of Egypt, and delivered them from their oppressors and told them not to worship the gods of the Ammonites. Here's what God says about it in Judges 6.10. But you have not listened to me. You've not listened to me. This is why you're in the situation you're in. You turn from God. You fail to pursue a relationship with God. You turn your back on God. And then you have the gall to say, he doesn't feel near to us. He's not coming through for us. He's not loving He's not loving me. He's not powerful. He's not with us. And what's so ironic in this moment is Gideon is in a wine press. And from the wine press, he's telling this person that's come to him, God's abandoned us, and he's talking to God. God is with him right there in that moment. In fact, when he finally realizes it later in the chapter in Judges 6.22, when Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, capital L, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He realizes God is in the story. God is in the story. He's still with this. And the Midianites, they may not have been able to see Gideon down in that wine press, but God saw him there. God was with him there. And then we read in verse 14, the Lord turned to him, to Gideon, and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I think it's interesting that that's how the Lord said it. Go in the strength you have. I don't know if he was trying in that moment to, to let Gideon start reflecting on the strength that he had because when we focus on the strength we have, especially in light of what he was calling Gideon to do, we are filled with insecurity and limitations and weakness, which is exactly where Gideon goes with this. I mean, if you go in the strength you have with God fighting on your behalf, then that's all the strength you need, right? But Gideon is not thinking, I guess he hadn't got, listened to the part yet. He Go in the strength you have. He got stuck there. He missed the part I'm sending you. And so Gideon was just thinking about the strength he had and all the excuses begin to fly. My clan is the weakest. I'm the least in my family. And all of his limitations, weaknesses, they're front and center, just as they are in your mind when you feel called by God to do something that you feel inadequate to do. And so the angel of the Lord, God, says this to Gideon, I'm with you. I'm with you. Go in the strength you have. I am with you. 
God uses people in the strength that they have for his purposes all the time. He is using people in the strength that they have, as little as it is, for his purposes all the time because he's with them and he's empowering them and he's working through them. Going in the strength you have without God, never enough. Going in the strength you have with God, always enough. And so when people think God is sitting on his hands, he's not working, he's not doing anything, he's not stopping this. I think during those times we have to ask the question, is God just letting evil have free reign here? Or in fact, could there be many times when God is saying, that's enough, no further, but we just don't realize it in the moment? Remember the story I told you earlier about Sherry saying, why does God sit on his hands and do nothing? Jeff Ines talks about how um, in that conversation at the dinner table, like most conversations that talk about evil atrocities, it often goes to the Holocaust. Why would God let six million Jews be killed by Hitler and his Third Reich and everything that came with it? And in that conversation, Jeff says that even while God gives us free will, there are ways God is working to say no further. And if we would honestly look at even that situation, we could see examples of that over and over again. Some of the more popular ones that probably some of you would immediately recognize was like Oscar Schindler, for example, the industrialist, who used his bargaining skills skills to wheel and to deal and save thousands of Jews from the gas ovens and the firing squads and other atrocities that were associated with the death camps. He did that through his work, and it was productive for him, but later he began to realize that he was saving innocent lives, and in the end, he lost everything. He risked his very own life for the people that he began to call his children. And today, there's well over 7,000 descendants. That was the number many years ago. It's well over that now of Jews living in the United States, Europe, and Israel who many of them have already expressed their gratitude, gratitude from the Jewish community for the ways in which he saved lives. And so he is, he is one of hundreds, if not thousands, of similar stories that have since been told. Even as Hitler killed millions, God was working behind the scenes. How many more would have died if God had not intervened by using men and women in the underground movement to limit the damage? A lot of you know of Corrie Tin Boone, her book, The Hiding Place, where her father built a secret room that would save lives of, of the Jews who would be in there. And then when, when Corrie and Betsy, when they were discovered and they were sent to death camps, and Corrie called Ravensbrook hell on earth, where she was beaten and starved and forced to work long hours and freezing cold just to fighting to stay alive. Even there, she and her sister became emissaries of comfort to all the others where every evening before bedtime, they would read scripture together and they would give emotional sustenance that the others needed to endure the pit of despair. And she goes on to talk about how one day at roll call, when she heard her name, prisoner Tin Boom, report after roll call, in that moment, she just began to cry out and pray to God because she didn't know what that meant. Was that gonna mean that she was gonna be shot or she was gonna be killed or what was it gonna be? So she just prayed, Father in heaven, please help me now. That was her prayer. She reported after roll call, she was given a card, and the card said, released. She was given some new clothes, a few of her possessions back, and a railway pass back to Holland. It was only afterwards, later, that she learned it was by mistake. Or was it? Maybe it was God's 
intervention. In today's world, God is constantly attacked. When we tell, every, when we tell people that, that people will be held accountable for every deed done in their body, good and bad, and when we tell people that the evil atrocities that are being committed, they will stand before God and God will carry out his justice and that justice will roll like a river. And people will say, how could a good God punish people and send them to hell? And if God doesn't act, if he doesn't intervene, if he doesn't bring justice, then people accuse God of injustice. He's obviously not loving and he's not all powerful because as Vine says, we want justice without punishment. We want prevention without intervention. We want relationship without sacrifice and that's just not logically possible. And then you have to ask yourself, how many times did God act and you just not know it? We can't see all the ways God is moving. How many times in your own life has God planted a a thought in your mind to go this direction instead of that direction or take this shortcut or take the long way around or to stop here for a moment? And you have no idea how in those moments he may be helping to direct your life away from a drunk driver or an accident or an unfortunate event in a world where sin and evil and curses reign. You will never know. The problem is we can't see the unseen. There's no way to know how often God does raise his hand and say this far, no further. Our knowledge is limited and it's finite. We focus on life's occasional destructive events and we think that's everything without looking at all the goodness that also surrounds it. It's the same thing that was happening when years ago when Larry King was interviewing Billy Graham and he asked, what are you to make of all these television preachers who preach of morality and then they fail so miserably to live up to their own standards? And it came in the context of a moral failure that had happened with Jim Baker. And Billy Graham, to illustrate this, he just said, well, I'll draw your attention to the thousands and thousands of airplanes that take off every single day and land every single day from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of airports. And every one of those planes in all of those places are taking off and landing safely without one word of praise or mention in the press. Yet when one plane experiences difficulty, it's front page news on on every newsstand across the globe. And he said, similarly, Thousands and thousands and thousands of Christian lives have been changed for good. And thousands upon thousands persistently resist temptation, patiently overcome trials, passionately pursue lives of purity. And on any given day, millions of attempts to live such lives are successful, yet there's no mention of their lives. But we sure focus on the evil. We'll focus on the one or we'll focus on the few. Vine says the sins of mankind continue to perpetuate evil running rampant in our world, but for every evil event that occurs, there are dozens of good events that are happening. If only we could see it. Maybe we think God should intervene more. Perhaps we think he should save more lives. But before we run around shouting, maybe in some instances screaming, why is God sitting on his hands? We need to remember he is looking down from heaven. He is passionately and pleading with free will men and women asking the same question of us. Why? Why do you use your freedom to hurt one another? 
Why do you insist on living for your own selfish desires? Why do you do what is right in your own eyes and not what I've called you to do? Why do you love your neighbor, not love your neighbor as yourself? And why do you not love me over everything else? God's questioning us today. He's asking us why. I think that's the more important question. We wanna say, God, you've abandoned us when we are the ones that have turned our back on him. And to love God and to love people, that's the greatest commandment that we have in scripture, to love God and to love people, which means this, if love is the highest good in this universe, then surely betrayed love is the greatest evil. And that is what the sin of the Israelites was doing. They betrayed the love of God for the love of idols and the love of self and flesh. And we do the very same things. We've betrayed our first love. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Notice that. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Loving God and loving people is the most important thing that we can do. For most, it's going to grow cold, especially in difficult times, especially with the increase of wickedness, especially when evil is around us. And so more and more, we gotta stay committed to our God and love him passionately. And so going back to the text, this is what God has Gideon do. In fact, it's the very first thing he has Gideon do when he calls him, you mighty warrior, Go, I'm sending you. Here's the first thing Gideon has to do. He has to rid Israel of the false loves, the false gods. It's in Judges 6, 25 to 26. He tells him, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. You know, the bull that was gonna be sacrificed to Baal in worship of him, you sacrifice it to the one true God. Get rid of the immorality. In worship of Asherah, there was sexual immorality. Get rid of it. It's time to, to get away from it, push away from it. You gotta show your love for God right now. So God wants Gideon to remove the false gods because these people have fallen into religious pluralism. Religious pluralism refers to the belief in in two or more religious worldviews as equally valid, equally acceptable. It's more than tolerance. Religious pluralism accepts multiple paths to God as valid or gods. It's usually contrasted with exclusivism, the idea that there's only one true way to God and one true God. Dick Clay, in, in his book, Ships Without Rudders, they wrote, he said, pluralism that we see here in Judges 6, and we see in our culture right now, he says it's unfortunately becoming the dominant belief. He said among our adult, young adult born-again Christians, so those 18 to 29, 60% now believe Jesus is not the only way to salvation, that Buddha and Muhammad have also taught valid ways to God. Only a third of born-again Christians overall have a consistent biblical view One in third are pluralists, and one in third are confused about whether Jesus is the only way. So he says, overall, nine out of 10 Americans have now embraced pluralism. What is the result of this? Well, like Israel, we've betrayed our first love. 
like Israel, we accept and promote sexual immorality of all kinds. Anything that's outside of this is rebellion to God. And when we speak against sin or we promote holiness, you just need to know right now you're going to face criticism just like Gideon did. In fact, in Judges 6.30, it says when Gideon did this, what God told him to do, that the people of the town demanded of his dad, Joash, to bring out your son, he must die. There's a story to how his father was able to help him live and said, if Baal's really God, let him contend with him and it'll be worse than what we could do to him. But when you look at this story of Gideon, one of the things I'm asking is just, what should our thinking be like? What should our mindset be whenever we see evil and wickedness and oppression around us and in our world and we feel overwhelmed and we feel weak and we feel vulnerable or we feel pain? Man, what should our thinking be? And there's a few things that I think could be really good for us when it comes to our thinking as we're wrestling with this stuff. I think the first one is this. Whatever strength you have in that moment, whatever strength you have is enough when God is with you and fighting for you. Whatever you're lacking, God fills. I mean, where is your strength right now? Does it feel small, weak? It should. (laughs) And trust it to God. He will do great things through the little strength that you have. And, and you know, the way we see that in this story played out is, is God whittles Gideon's army to go defeat the Midianites from 32,000 to 300 to go up against 135,000 Midianites. 300 versus 135,000. And you say, is that crazy? I mean, is God crazy? No, he's not crazy. The reason he's not crazy is because he knows the strength, he knew the strength that Gideon had but he also knew the strength that he had. 135,000 was nothing for God. So he told Gideon, you just go in the strength you have and I'll be with you. That's enough. God can do more than you could ever ask or imagine, immeasurably more when he's with you. What little you have to offer is much when God is in it. So don't focus on the first part of the sentence. The first part of the sentence was go in the strength you have. Don't focus on that one, go on the rest of it. I'm sending you, I'll be with you. We focus on that part, God is with us. And so we just use what he's given us. And I can just tell you right now, my problem, my problem in this area is how often I go in my own strength that I have, period. I will work so hard, I will put in so many hours, I will put out so much effort, I will give the best that I have, I'll be worn out and drained when I come to the realization I don't know that God was in it because I didn't ask God to be in it. Even if it's something good, I was going in the strength I had, but I think that was without God. That was my effort, not aligning myself with his and submitting my strength to to his strength, my weaknesses and limitations to his strength so he could do something with it. I think God is waiting for us because prayerless work is powerless work. And how often have you been working hard but it's powerless because it's prayerless and God's not in it. You're not doing 
what God would have you. You're not aligning yourself with him. You're just going out on your own. And God wants to be a part of the work. You know, in speaking about Gideon in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34, we read this. It's talking about Gideon and some of the other judges. It says, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Whose weakness was turned to strength. God says, go in the strength you have. It's really weak. It's really limited. Well, I'm going to turn it into something powerful by my hand. Whatever strength you have, it's enough when God is with you. I, I think something else that we could be thinking about in moments like this is God sees you for who you're becoming, not for what or who you are today. He sees you for who you're becoming, not for who you are today. You know, Gideon got a new name. Mighty Warrior. That was his new name. And God gave him that name before he ever demonstrated anything that would reflect that name. In fact, in the rest of the chapter, Gideon is so scared and afraid, he needs all kinds of signs from God that this is really God talking to him. And so he tells God, I'm gonna lay out a fleece and I want all the ground to be wet with dew around it, but the fleece dry. And then I'll, I'll know it's really you, God. And God does it. And then he says, well, let me just ask one more. Let's, uh, you know, I, just in case, let's, let me put the fleece out again and this time make the fleece wet with dew, but the ground dry. God does it. Gideon's still scared and afraid and not convinced. And God in his graciousness comes to Gideon and says, if you're still afraid to attack, I want you to go down there to, that, to their camp at night and I want you to listen. He goes and sneaks down there and he listens outside of a tent. And one man's talking to another man about a dream that he had about this, this barley bread that tumbled into the Midianite camp. And, and this man says, this can be none other than Gideon. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And he's afraid and Gideon hears this. And it fills him with courage. Not to rely on his own strength, but to use the strength that he had to rely on God's strength, God's provision, God's working. Because God knows the end of the story. When God looks at you, he, he knows the end of your story. He already identifies you and calls you what you will be, not just who you are today. It's like when Jesus called Peter rock. Even though Peter would deny him three times, he was already being called rock, knowing who he would be, who he would become in God's strength. And the scriptures say about you right now today that you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. It says in Romans chapter 8, 37, I'm more than a conqueror. In Matthew 5, 17, I'm light of the world, salt of the earth. Or how about 1 Corinthians 2, 16? I have the mind of Christ. And some of you are thinking, my mind, it's not thinking the way that I, I, I what do you mean I have the mind of Christ because God's declaring who you are in Jesus and who you're becoming in him, not just who you are today. He is looking to your future. He's given you a new name, a new identity, a new mind, a new life. And so when you are empowered by God's Holy Spirit, you can become more than you thought you could be. You can become who you should be. And God is already calling you by your new name, your identity in him. And what that means for us is when you have discarded yourself and removed yourself from the equation and said, 
I, I, I should not be a part of this. God is declaring to you, you're a mighty warrior. When some of you have discarded other people and you've cast them aside as being people of no hope and you want nothing to do with them, would it surprise you if God called them a mighty warrior? Are we giving up on people too soon? Because we're just seeing what's going on today, not for who God is making them tomorrow. He sees it. He knows it. And I think a, a third thing when we come into these moments when we're just wondering where God is in this moment, I think we need to remember that when we identify and destroy the false loves in our life, we just need to know that the criticism is going to come. That faithfulness is a prerequisite to greatness. That faithfulness will result in pushback from those who love other things more than they love God. When we're holy, when we're faithful, we are going to get pushback just like Gideon got pushback. And so I think the, the real question we really need to ask ourselves right here, right now is this. Will you trust God? Will you trust that God is in control? Even though mountains may tremble and sea billows roll. Will you trust that God is in control? Even if mountains tremble and sea billows roll. Will you trust him? Will you cling to him? Or will you blame him? Will you repent and turn to him? Or will you harden your heart against him? Will you say, God, why have you abandoned me? Or could this be a moment to say, God, is there any area of my heart where I've abandoned you? I want to turn back to you. I want to come near to you. I want to draw near to you. And I'm just going to entrust my future to you. You are in control. Even if the mountains tremble and the sea bills roll, God, you're still in control. I know it looks like evil is. I know it looks like sin is. But we learn in these moments, God is greater God is bigger. We just go in the strength that he gives us, relying on him. And so, God, we're praying that right now. I pray that for every one of us today that we would trust you, lean into you, believe in you. That, God, we would, instead of shaking a fist at you, we come humbly before you. Well, I know there's a lot of pain and hurt, and there's all kinds of different reasons and causes, but in, in Judges chapter 6, what we're seeing right here, God, is that we need to repent. We need to renew our love for you. We need to return to our first love and cast off these other loves and these other affections so that you're first in our life. And God, I pray that we will do that right now by the power of your spirit working in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you stand to your feet today and sing, I'm gonna be stepping out here to Decision Point. I would love to talk and pray with you there. And if you're watching online, you can go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision to begin a conversation with us. But let this be our prayer right now as we sing. 
Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.